Thank you, Benjamin. I've always hated to have to try to introduce somebody because you don't know exactly what you're supposed to say. You don't want to say too much. You don't want to take their time. You want to say enough to use your credibility to give them credibility. I've just always thought that it was kind of a tough, a tough balancing act. Did a good job, Benjamin. Thank you. This morning I'm going to talk about one thing in two different parts. I want to talk about the church. I'm going to start by talking just a little bit about the nature of the church and a little bit applying it to relations, and then we're going to look specifically at the church as a body of people who minister to one another. Now, no one ever gave me any guidance as to how long I was allowed to speak. <laughs> I do notice there's a clock at the back of the auditorium I learned years ago. Whenever a congregation has a clock at the back of the auditorium, they are time conscious. <laughs> so since we've had a lot of things going on this morning, if we're supposed to be out by 1130 and we're going to have a closing song and prayer, I have about six minutes. <laughs> so is 1130 when you normally get out or does Benjamin normally go long? No, don't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, I've got to go home sometime today. Yeah, I've been uh, coming up with ideas and discarding them and coming up with ideas and discarding them, and I got them all printed up last night and had it down to one page. I thought, that's just right. And just sitting here this morning, seeing everything that's going on, it's a good thing I don't have something to write on because I'd have four or five more pages. Do you notice the activity with all the kids? Do you notice the noise? Do you notice the life that is a part of this congregation? Now this is something I've come to really appreciate about healthy congregations. Over the years, Sherry and I have had the opportunity to travel all over the world, be in all kinds of congregations, all kinds of different ones. And sometimes we're traveling and we want to just sneak in the back door, sit on the back pew, and sneak out quickly. That never seems to succeed. Even when it's some of the older, colder congregations, they see new blood and they're going to try to grab us. And so we end up standing around talking, meeting people. But one of the things I've learned to notice is a congregation that has young families in it, as opposed to congregations that don't. About a year ago, I was giving a, a lesson somewhat like this one to a congregation just a little bit north of Little Rock. Showed up on Sunday morning. People got there early. Okay, when people get there early, that's often a sign of a more mature congregation. There were no children in that congregation. I think the youngest person that showed up that morning was in their 30s. I'd say the average age of that congregation was mid-60s. And one of the things they wanted me to help them with was how can they attract young families. 
Well, the problem with attracting young families is young families are a lot of work. Young families are not stable. Young families bring children. Children are noisy and chaotic. They move. They don't like to sit still. They need lots of attention. They need more attention than what just the parents can pay to them. If you look at the human work going into this congregation and figure out how, what percentage of that is going into the children and how many hours a week is going into the children, I know it's going to be a lot of hours just for what they had to do this morning. Took some preparation and planning and then making it happen. And then those poor kids standing up here forever. Now, it looked like most of them were of the personality they were okay, and a couple of them loved it. I would have been the child at that age that I would have been sick that Sunday and not shown up, just for the fear of having to stand in front of all these people and let them look at me. So I've come a long ways in my life. Okay, y'all are doing this well with your young families. There should be problems that come from that. When you have the problems in the congregation as a result of having children, youth, young families, you need to consider that to be part of the cost you're paying to have a healthy congregation and a congregation that will probably still be here in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years. When I was a student at Harding, I'd go out most Sundays and preach for this little congregation up in the northeast part of the state. And I got the little preaching gig because my grandfather attended there. And they didn't have anybody to preach. And I'd show up and they'd pay me five bucks. That pretty much covered the cost of gas up there and back. But I needed the experience. And it was one of those older congregations that there was two teenagers in the church and I felt so sorry for them and their parents were in their 40s and then the next youngest person was 70 something and most of them were in their 80s and they were very set in their ways as I learned the first Sunday when I preached a little bit too long when it hit the point that the song leader thought I should be through he stood up and started leading singing <laughs> hey that works that works I mean I quit and I stood down front to receive people. You know. About 10 years later, we were traveling that part of the state and had my kids with me. I said, hey, I want to show y'all where I first started preaching. So we drove. I had to remember how to get that little community. We found it, found the church building. It was still there, pulled up into the front of it, and it was all grown up. I mean, you couldn't even tell where cars parked. And we go up to the front steps, and a tree had grown up on the steps in front of it that totally filled up the entry to the church. So obviously it had been years since anybody had been inside that building. We went around inside and jumped up and looked in the windows, and the pews were still there. The old wood-burning stove was still there. The pulpit was still there. And that building had been locked up tight for a long time. We've got church buildings all over the state like that. Many of them around here. And it comes from people not having the patience to put up with people who have problems. 
because if you work with young families, problems are inherent in that. They're learning how to do everything. They don't know how to do it. And older people who've learned 40 years ago how to do it often don't have the patience to allow younger people to learn. And you can't tell them. It's not how the older people learned it. They learned it by messing up and learning their lesson. That's how we all learn. It's a wonderful fantasy that somebody can just tell us how to do it right and we can do it. But I have not seen that really work in anybody's life. Although growing up, my dad often quoted Benjamin Franklin, experience is a harsh taskmaster, but a fool will learn from no other. And then look at me and said, are you a fool, son? I guess so. <laughs> my dad loved those little sayings. So I commend you for what you're doing. I commend you for the noise and the disruption, the background right here. This is fantastic. <laughs> I love that. The wagon and the can. This is healthy. I commend you. Something y'all have going that some of you I know have come here from much smaller congregations and you appreciate it. Some of you may not have come from those congregations and not realize. But it really hit home to me with our last song that Johnny led. Now that's a song you can't really sing and enjoy with just a handful of people. Two weeks ago, Sherry and I were in position when we sang that song, just slightly over two weeks ago. It was the end of the Baltic Family Camp, something Sherry and I work with every year. I'm not sure it's something we choose to work with. It's something we tend to get guilted into every year. And I still don't say no as well as I should. So anyway, every year we end up over there. And this is started out for the missionaries in Eastern Europe. And then it grew into the church leaders in Eastern Europe. And now it's the missionaries, the church leaders, and anybody else they want to bring. And we had about 120 people this year, the largest number that's ever showed up. The average congregation represented there has about eight people that attend on Sundays. That's the average. Some of them, it's just a family that will meet, and they keep trying to invite people into their homes every Sunday to meet, and sometimes it's just, you know, the parents and a couple kids, and that's all that meet. We had people from, I think, 13 different countries there. Many of them, they come every year because that's the largest gathering of Christians they've ever seen in their life. And they love that. Okay, we have more than that here this morning. But singing that song with the different parts, that was our final song around the campfire, the last night of camp. And it was beautiful. And it just made chills go up my spine, especially knowing most of these people are now for the next year going to go back to places where they can barely sing at all. So sometimes we don't appreciate what we have when we have it. Y'all have something really special here. I hope every Sunday you'll take the time to appreciate it. Which leads me into the second part. Not just appreciating it, but then using what we have to help other people. Young families need help. They need wisdom. They need encouragement. They need the examples of people who've been there where they've been so they can watch their life and see how to do it. 
They need, they need relief taking care of the kids. They need somebody else to chase them for a little while. Somebody to hold the baby while they can take a breath. They need help. But many of us here need help and won't ask for it. So what Sherry and I do comes under the realm of what's called mental health. Mental health is not something that many churches are at all comfortable with. As a matter of fact, most of them would just rather pretend it doesn't exist. Despite the many passages in the Bible where the Lord has directed us in healthy ways of living, thinking, believing, ways that will help us with mental, emotional, and behavioral health. We have the instruction for this. I'm going to speak specifically in the next very few minutes about the two most common disorders that happen in our population. There's many different disorders people can suffer from, but most of them are very rare. But there's two that are extremely common. That's depression and anxiety. Depression is the type of thing that just saps your energy. When you're depressed, it's very difficult to even get out of bed. When you're depressed, it's almost impossible to find any joy in life. No matter how good the day is, it can't feel good. Depression is a physical state. Certain things in the body are working different than normal. It's an emotional state. You just feel down. You feel sad all the time. It's a mental state because it, it skews your view of the world so that you're quick to see the bad stuff and slow to see the good stuff. And it's a disorder when it reaches the point that it's interfering with your life. Now, all of us have tendencies. We may have tendencies towards depression. We may have tendencies towards anxiety. We may have tendencies towards anger or towards bipolar or towards paranoia or, I mean, a number of other potential disorders. But it's not a disorder when we're able to maintain our life in the face of it. When we're able to take a deep breath and go on. When we're able to to pray and go on or read scriptures or go talk to somebody encouraging and go on and it doesn't interfere. Then it's just a tendency. Everybody has tendencies. And you know what your tendency is. And many other people in here probably share the same tendency. And many other people don't share it at all and don't understand it. But a disorder is what happens when that tendency gets out of balance. And it starts interfering with life. When you don't want to get up in the morning because you feel down, but you make yourself get up and you go about your day, that's not a disorder. When you struggle and struggle to get out of bed, when you struggle to do something, when you go home and hide after work, that's a disorder. It's interfering with your life. At any given moment, over one out of ten people in our population is suffering from depression. So we have, what, 150, 200 people here today? With one out of ten, just multiply it by that. We have quite a few of you here today who at this moment are suffering from a disorder of depression. And I say to you, I'm really impressed that you made it this morning. 
You did the right thing. I'm counting on this being a blessing to you, but I know how hard it was. There's a more common disorder than depression. Depression is the second most common. There's another one that at any given moment in the United States population, 18% of its population are suffering from, and that's anxiety. So almost one out of five at any given moment is suffering from anxiety. So that means however many people we have suffering from depression here, we have twice as many suffering from anxiety. Seldom do they suffer from the same thing at the same time. I'm hoping it's clicking in your head right now that uh, there are some hurting people around me right now at this moment. And it's either hopefully clicking there or you're sitting there saying, wow, I'm not alone. There's other people just like me around. And there are. Now over the course of life, about one out of four people will suffer from a serious depression. Serious enough to interfere with their life. Over the course of life, about 60% of people will suffer from a serious anxiety disorder. Serious enough it interferes with life. These things are extremely common. So over the course of life, it is rare for anybody to make it through their life and not suffer from some kind of disorder of some type. So for us in the church to ignore it is to ignore the reality of the lives that our members live. And they need help. And every Sunday morning when you come here, if you're not the one suffering from a disorder, thank the Lord and know that many people around you are. Be encouraging. Be quick to listen, quick to pray for them. Jesus spent quite a bit of his ministry ministering to people with mental and emotional and behavioral disorders. For those with anxiety, one of the common side effects of anxiety is developing a very efficient skill of worrying. In the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus summed up all of his teaching in these one short three-chapter section in Matthew, over 10% of it is devoted to helping people with worry. And he says, don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. And things are, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about where you're going to sleep. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Okay, now these are fundamentals of life. Those aren't the things most of us worry about. <coughs> you know, for many, school's about to start, and they worry about, okay, am I going to like the teacher? Is the teacher going to like me? Who am I going to have to set by? What's going to happen? It's not food and clothing and shelter, the very basics. We come up with all kinds of inventive things to worry about that are just foolish if we have the basics. But we do it anyway. So for us to say, don't worry, that doesn't fix anything. How do you not worry? I grew up as an anxious child. I've spent much of my adulthood in and out of anxiety. I understand anxiety. I remember as an older teenager reading these passages through 
in Matthew chapter 6, the last part of the chapter, which is talking about weary, trying to figure out how to quit doing it. I believe the passages. I believe Jesus. I'm like, I, I don't need to worry about all this stuff, and I still worry about it. How do you stop? Well, he goes on to explain some of that. One of the things that's ended up being a pet peeve of mine in churches are most of the Bible lessons and the large amount of the sermons I've heard that tell me what I'm supposed to do, and they never get around to tell, telling me how to do it. So I go away just feeling worse than I did before. Because now I know clearly what I should do, and I don't know how to do it. Tell me how to do it. That's what Sherry and I do with people all day long. We help them figure out how to do what most of them already know they ought to do. We break it down into the, the components. For example, throughout the New Testament, we're called upon to be self-controlled people. That's a good thing, self-control. How do you get it? Friday morning, I was working with a young man who's about to go back to college. He lost his scholarship last year. He's going back, doesn't know how he's going to be able to do well. He's an engineering student. He's very sharp, but he doesn't go to class because he has to get out of bed to go to class. He doesn't really like class. And he doesn't do his readings because they're boring. He doesn't like doing his readings. And he's just, he, he's, he despises himself now because he can't make himself do this stuff. And we've been, spent the summer teaching him self-control. We start with such things as this is the type of homework he's had. Figure out what time every morning you think you should get up. Set your alarm for 30 minutes before that. See how long it takes you to get out of bed. If you can get out of bed as soon as that alarm goes off, you're developing self-control. If it takes you that full 30 minutes, you find like, well, I have to get up now. Well, that's not a lot of self-control. So he's got 30 minutes every morning to start the day fighting with himself to develop self-control. Before he leaves the room every day, I told him when you start to walk out of your room for the last time in the morning, turn around, look back, and if your bed's not made, go back and make it. Because most boys don't like making their bed. And he lives in a home where his mom's going to make it for him. He goes back and he makes his bed. Every day he needs to find something around the household that would be good for the family to do that he does not want to do. You know, I carry out the trash. Find something that he does not want to do. Clean the toilet. Find something and make himself do it. That's how you develop self-control. Making yourself do things that should be done, but you don't want to do them. It's just like building muscles. These are the how-to. And these are the kind of things that Sherry and I do, is help people find the how-to. Now, to find the what, if you're suffering from depression, I challenge you, read through the Psalms, especially David's Psalms, and realize that David fought depression his entire life. And you see that clearest in the Psalms. You can see some of it come out in the story of his life, but you see it clearly in the Psalms. An excellent example is Psalms 13 where he starts the psalm in such deep despair. Life is hopeless. He's a total failure. Everybody wants to kill him. And then he ends the psalm just a few verses later. Thank you, Lord, for a wonderful life. Thank you for being my Lord. Thank you for taking care of me. Life would be great. And in those few verses, he shows the process a person goes through, usually not that quickly, 
to work themselves from a depression back into a normal state of mind. And you see that in many of the Psalms. Yeah, mentioned Matthew 6 for those suffering from anxiety. For all of us, Philippians, the book of Philippians is the great book on mental health. Almost the whole book is all about how to think properly. Kind of wrapping it up when you get to the fourth chapter where it says, okay, this is how you be healthy. You think on this and 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 you think on this. Oh, and uh, I've learned the secret of contentment. You might try it. That's one of those really frustrating ones because he says, I've learned the secret of contentment, so life's good. And you're like, so what is it? Give me the secret. And it's in there in bits and pieces and you have to figure it out. Yeah, I don't like that. But it's, it's there and you need help to figure it out. And you can learn the secret of contentment. But I'm challenging you to. Be alert to the hurt around you. When I first started preaching, an old preacher challenged me to realize that no matter what my lesson was on that Sunday morning, that there were some people in the audience who were seriously hurting and desperately hoping to hear something that would help them. And for those of you this morning, I hope you've heard something, some little guidance in this that'll help you. But when you walk in these doors every Sunday morning, I challenge you, look around for the hurting. Be encouraging. Pray for them through the week. And maybe one of the toughest things is for us to overcome the pride that we have in not wanting anybody to know that we actually have a problem. You know, we try to be very confidential in what we do because people are bothered by needing help. And that stops most people from getting help. I think it'd be a better world if we didn't have to be confidential, if everybody could just say, hey, I need help, will you help me? That's not the world we live in. So I want to end by reading from some words of Jesus in Matthew, the 11th chapter. Where Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But to come to Jesus, we have to admit that we're not perfect. We have to admit that we need something bigger than us to make our life right. We're going to sing an invitation song. If you need to come to Jesus, do that this morning. But before you leave, if you're hurting, find somebody that you feel comfortable talking to and get some encouragement. And if you're not hurting, look for somebody that you can encourage. Make it a habit on Sunday mornings. Let's stand and sing.